Hey there, podcast listeners. As you've probably guessed, this is not a regular episode of the Life and Times video games. It's something I'm calling a soundbite. It's a bonus mini episode that shares just one little short story from video game history. And this is a story about gatekeepers, about publishers, really. And what a terrible thing they can be when they stop caring about the product and instead concentrate only on where the product slots into the market. It's a problem that comes up a lot in games history. It's killed genres, destroyed studios, chased away entire demographics. It's derivative and it's lazy. But it's a great way to make money in the short term. And thankfully, it's no longer an insurmountable barrier to producing a creative work for commercial purposes. You see, the gatekeepers are still in charge now, but they're no longer in control. You can get past the gatekeepers today if you're smart about it and you work hard enough or long enough. But that wasn't necessarily true 20, 25 years ago. This is a story from before the creatives regained control. A story from the games industry's peak period of consolidation, when the creatives had very little control at all, and the industry was in the midst of a massive upheaval. This is a story from Mark Ferrari, the pixel artist and illustrator who popularised a graphical technique called dithering, which involves making it seem like there are more colours on the screen than in fact there are. And he did that back when he worked at LucasArts, where he did background art for adventure games like Loom and The Secret of Monkey Island. He's also the guy who showed the world that things like colour cycling and palette shifting were so, so much more than mere party tricks. They could animate entire breathtaking vistas if you used them. Mark is one of the greatest 2D computer graphics artists ever. But even he got caught up in all this gatekeeper stuff. I talked to him back in episode 3 on the development and impact of his graphical innovations. And this is a story that I just couldn't find a place for in there. But it's one that I thought needed to be told. So here it is. The whole marketing strategy by the time we get to the the 80s at least the whole marketing strategy of a lot of businesses including software was that you develop an audience for a particular kind of thing and you just make sure that they don't really have options for anything except the kind of thing you've developed the audience for i have a i have a really great story to tell you that will illustrate this problem perfectly When I first started at the last big software company I actually worked for, one of my first jobs was for a giant international company that basically made junky digital toys. I will leave their name out of it right now, but it's a name that anybody in the business would know. But they really specialized in very inexpensive, very low quality toys. And they wanted to do one of these little TV controller games, you know, where the whole game was in the controller and you just plug it into your TV and and play it. It was a low resolution, very cheap, very small game, all running from a 
tiny little chip with hardly any processing power and you know, all the rest of this. And they wanted to make an X-Men game. And so they gave the company I worked for a very short production schedule and a very small budget to do this cheap little X-Men game. And the company put me on it because they because it was going to be an 8-bit game and they knew that I had 8-bit expertise. Uh, and so the team was five or six of us and I was passionate about 8-bit art and my team members were passionate about the X-Men. And as we begin talking about how to approach this very short production schedule and this very small budget, we began to realize that we could probably do some really amazing things, even with so few resources. So we ended up making this just incredibly kick-ass 8-bit X-Men game. I ended up doing some things that were regarded as black magic at the time with palette manipulation to put way more art in the game than there was actually storage space for. I had scenes in that game that contained nine completely different pictures just by changing palettes. And when I say completely different pictures, I don't mean the same picture at a different time of day or in different weather. I mean, if you put this palette on this one art file, it's a valley filled with trees and fluffy clouds above it. And if you change it to this other palette, it's a cityscape with a completely different sky and bridges and freeways just by changing the palette. I was doing things like that. And we did all of this in their short production schedule with their tiny budget. And then we sent it off expecting them to call amazed at what an astonishingly awesome product we've made for so little money in so little time. And what we got was a really angry call to the head of our division from the head of that project at this big company saying, we did not ask for this and you have really screwed us over. And the head of our division said, what are you talking about? He said, look, there is an entire line of these games in stores right now. And when our customers see this game, they are not going to want any of the others. You have just rendered the rest of our line unmarketable. So <laughs> we all kind of gaped in amazement for a moment and then went on with what we were doing and resolved never to do that again. So. There really was this mentality that the most dangerous thing that could happen, the software industry was committed to maximum profit for minimum investment. And that meant giving as little as possible and getting as much as possible. So their games tended to, their games tended to do, there was a mentality by the mid eighties where all the money went into advertising and packaging because they were selling you a concept and there was a huge advertising campaign that stirred up a lot of excitement about the coming concept and a package that made this concept look real and exciting. And the whole business model was that you figured out how many units you needed to sell in six months before word got around that there was nothing but dirt inside the box. And if you could make the profit margin you wanted in that six months, then you were a success. Nobody cared about whether anybody would like this project three months or six months after it was released. They just needed to know they could sell this many units before the product was exposed and people lost interest. And then they'd sell a new concept with advertising and packaging. So the, the worst thing that could happen to companies making software products in that environment was that somebody actually came out with something better and was allowed to get it all the way to the attention of the market.
it wasn't just an issue of without the gatekeepers, you couldn't make this neat thing. It was that when the gatekeepers were the only way through to your market or your audience, the gatekeepers would actively make sure that you did not get to them. That you did not, that your product was buried if in fact it was new and good. Because the only way to compete with that would be to completely retool what they were doing. And that would be expensive and you know, it would violate all of the rules of maximum profit for minimum minimum investment. It was a bad time. <laughs> that's sort of when I fell out of. I mean, that that happened also. I think that's one of the reasons that I just fell out altogether when I hit that truck in 2000. I, by then, I was kind of just tired of being in a place that wanted to make sure nothing good happened. It was, it was a very discouraging time. And I'm really, really happy that we're past it finally. You can listen to the episode I made on Mark's graphical innovations, which again does not include this story that you've just heard, at lifeintimes.games. And you can see a few screenshots of the cancelled X-Men game at his website, markferrari.com. It's under the label 8-Bit Game Art, and then you've got to scroll down towards the bottom when you get to that page. Mark worked recently on a spiritual successor to Maniac Mansion, called Thimbleweed Park, along with other LucasArts alums, Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, and David Fox. Names that may all be familiar to you if you're a fan of their old point-and-click adventure games. If you buy the iOS version via the link lifeandtimes.games slash thimbleweedpark, I get a small cut of the sale price. That's lifeandtimes.games slash thimbleweedpark. It's also available on PC, Mac, Linux, Android, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch. For more sound bites like this, or for the regular full-length documentary-style episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes at lifeandtimes.games/itunes, or on whatever podcasting service you like to use. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at lifeandtimesvg. And follow me on Twitter at MossRC. I keep some of the bonus content private to just my Patreon backers, so if you want to guarantee that you hear everything I release, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon and sign up for a monthly pledge. You can also make a one-time donation, sans rewards, by heading to paypal.me slash MossRC. I know there are a lot of of great things you can spend your money on these days so if you have a few bucks to spare and you feel like throwing it my way to help pay for hosting and production costs it'll mean the world to me and it'll really help to keep me going with this project now I'll be back soon with a new episode on the early days of ROM hacking and fan translations until then my name is Richard Moss Thanks for listening. See ya.